Kia and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I welcome back Cathy Stevenson to the podcast. We are going to be discussing non-consensual sexual harm, how to ask about it, and what to do if you should get a disclosure. Introducing Cathy. Cathy is a fellow of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. She's a senior lecturer at Otago University on sexual violence and partner violence, and for a number of years has worked at MedSec as a forensic medical examiner at Wellington Sexual Assault Service. Cathy is a health columnist, writing weekly columns for The Stuff, and now authoring a youth column for The New Zealand Doctor. More recently, Cathy has taken on the role as Clinical Lead Southern at the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. Cathy, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Louise. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So Cathy, we're talking about non-consensual sexual harm, and we're going to use a case to illustrate some of the points here. So it's Monday mid-morning. You've had a busy start to your week in your clinic. A new patient is booked. She's 15 years old. You welcome her into your room and after introducing yourself, you ask her for the reason for her visit. She replies in a soft voice that she is after the morning after pill. You notice that her affect is flat, her eyes downward and she appears to be on the verge of tears. You ask her to tell you a little bit more about her request for the morning after pill and she starts to sob. Wondering about whether or not her request for the ECP is the result of a sexual harm incident. You want to ask her about this, but you feel slightly awkward. Kathy, you've been in general practice for a number of years now and working as part of the sexual assault team. So this line of questioning is probably quite familiar to you. But for some of our GP registrars or our new fellows or even more experienced fellows, they may never have had a disclosure. So how do you ask about it? Yes, a really important question, Louise. And I totally remember back in the day when I was a very junior GP getting cases exactly like this and feeling, I think, really quite anxious about asking because I didn't quite know what to do if somebody said yes. I think the first thing when you are faced with a conversation like this with a young person is to be really upfront about privacy and confidentiality because it's incredibly important that this young woman knows what you're going to do with the information that she may choose to share with you. So the way I would approach this is to say to her, you know, hey, before we go any further and before I ask you any more questions, I'd really like you to know that what we talk about is private and confidential and I will look after that information and you can trust me. It's also obviously important to let her know that in certain situations, you may need to share that information with other people. And the way I tend to say that is, you know, if I've got any concerns about either your safety or someone else's safety, I may need to share what you're telling me with somebody else. But before I do that, I will always let you know so that it's a partnership and you've empowered her to a degree in that. Um, And then I think you should move on to, to the rest of the conversation. But I think getting privacy and confidentiality out there first are incredibly important. The next thing I think that's really important when you're faced with a case like this in your busy clinic, is to make sure that you've got time to have that conversation. And it's really hard if it's, you know, 9.30 on a Monday morning and you know you've got 12 other patients booked after here. But sometimes I will actually pause and say, 
hey, look, I wonder if we're going to need a few extra minutes here. I'm just going to make sure that my colleagues don't come in. I'm going to go out and tell them I'm going to put my next patients on hold. And it's just going to give us a little bit longer to talk this through than we might otherwise have. Because the last thing you want is somebody knocking on the door just as she's feel able to start telling you what has happened to her. Once you've done those, I think the next thing is just to ask her what she wants to tell you. This young woman is already looking distressed and unhappy. So you've got a pretty big signpost there that something may have happened to her. So in this particular case, I would just start by gently exploring that and saying, you know, look, you've, you've come and you've told me that you want the emergency contraceptive pill. And I'm picking up that you're looking a bit distressed and a little bit unhappy and sad about that. Do you feel able to tell me what happened? You know, if she starts having the conversation, just sit and listen. Let her direct how much she wants to tell you and, and what kind of detail she feels comfortable handing over to you. If she doesn't feel able to tell you anything and you get very closed, short replies, um, that's the time that you need to start bringing out your routine inquiry questions and gently probing a little bit further if you can. Thank you. That makes perfect sense. And I think you're quite right. Often having your colleagues knowing not necessarily what's going on, but being there to support you is important to have that space to allow a good conversation. So that would be crucial. How common is it for a young person to spontaneously disclose without being asked or probed about sexual harm incidents, Kathy? I would say it's, it's pretty uncommon, Louise, sadly. Of all the people that experience sexual harm in New Zealand, we think that over 94% don't ever go to the police. Um, so certainly in terms of that kind of reporting, it's incredibly uncommon. And I suspect that's especially hard for young people. But we also know that the majority of people don't actually tell anyone, whether we're talking about the police or a doctor or a friend or a partner. So most people hold this information to themselves for a very long time and sometimes forever. Now, as GPs, we are in a very trusted and privileged position with our patients. And we have the opportunity to have one-on-one -on -one conversations without anyone else present. So we are uniquely able, I think, to start asking about these kind of things of all of our patients and to start routine inquiry. And by doing that, it opens the door to a conversation that they may not have been able to have with anybody else. And it then enables them to access the kind of specialist support that we know is associated with better outcomes for people that have experienced sexual harm. So I think it's incredibly important that we ask. I think it's incredibly important that we routinely inquire. Um, and I think it's incredibly important that we understand that we're not always going to get a disclosure, even if somebody has experienced sexual harm. There are lots and lots of barriers for people disclosing this kind of stuff, but opening the door to the conversation and showing that we are people that care about sexual harm, that we are a service that people can come to when they've been sexually harmed, and that we will know how to support them and how to point them to the right services if they have experienced this kind of thing is a massive part of what we can do in general practice. And what I've found over the years is that sometimes I've, I've worked with people for a really long time and I might have asked them multiple times about past trauma and it takes ages for them to be in the right space to tell me. So even though you may be asking in the right way, it really relies on them being in the right place as well to be able to tell you. But it's just showing that we care, we're here, and at some point, if it's something you want to talk about, then we're the place that you can come to. Kathy, you mentioned routine inquiries. What do you mean there? And when would you routinely ask 
about this? The routine inquiry is a way of making sure that we consider sexual harm for all of our female patients, no matter what situation they're in. So clearly in the case that we've talked about, this is a young girl for whom I would have lots of red flags around whether or not she has experienced sexual harm. And I would be exploring that in a lot more detail than I might with some of my other patients in that morning's clinic. But for routine patients coming in, inquiry is really important. And if we inquire in a sensitive, appropriate way with plenty of signposting, we are far more likely to get a disclosure than if we just expect patients to be able to walk in the door and say, hey, doctor, I'd like you to know that at some point in my life, I experienced sexual harm. That's incredibly difficult for someone to do, and they're incredibly unlikely to do it. But by routinely inquiring, we give people an opportunity to tell us that this is part of their history. And it can actually be incredibly important for us to know. And sometimes it's a real light bulb moment as a GP, and it helps you to understand, I think, the complexity of what is going on for that patient. Now, with routine inquiry, there are some really important ground rules before you start routinely inquiring. I think it's really important that you do it when there is just the young person in the room with you. They're not going to disclose, and it may be incredibly unsafe for them to disclose if there's someone else with them. You have no idea whether the family member or the partner or even the friend that has come in with them could be part of that sexual harm and could in fact be the perpetrator of the sexual harm. So it's incredibly important that they are on their own, and that includes verbal children as well. So any child over the age of two, you need to assume could be verbal and you need to make sure that they're not in the room with the young person that you're seeing before you start asking these questions. The other thing I think you need to do is it's really important to to frame routine inquiry with what we call a normalizing statement so that the young person you're talking to doesn't think, oh my goodness, this doctor's asking me about sexual harm and I just came in because I had a cold or because I wanted to talk about the pill. Do they know that this is something I've experienced? Do I look like a victim? Have they singled me out you know, above all their other patients today? So a normalizing statement can be a really great way to kind of signpost for them. A, this is something I'm going to ask you that might be tricky, but also this is something that we ask all of our female patients here about. And I appreciate that I'm talking about females and of course males can be victims of sexual harm as well. But when we look at routine inquiry, and we look at the evidence currently for routine inquiry, it does apply to women. And it applies to women over the age of 16. And it applies to men where we are concerned there may be signs or symptoms that they've experienced harm. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. So sexual harm, our statistics in New Zealand are not something to be proud of. What are the numbers that of young people that experience sexual harm in their lifetime? You're right, Louise. Um, Unfortunately, we definitely can't be proud of these statistics here. And one of the saddest things for me is that these statistics don't really seem to be getting any better. And what we know from things like the New Zealand Crime Victim Survey and other pieces of data out there are that around one in four females in New Zealand will experience sexual harm during their lifetime. We don't really know about males, but the figures are between one in six and one in 12. So really, really high numbers. And unfortunately, we know that for lots of people who experience sexual harm, the impact of that can be huge and it can be an impact that they carry with them for a very, very long time. So it's a really important issue. And, you know, as primary care health providers, we are in a role where we can ask about this 
and start to open up that conversation. So I suppose that brings me on to asking about risk factors, Kathy. So what are the risk factors? Who is at risk? Who should we be thinking as they walk through our door? This is a person that we should be thinking of to routinely inquire. Yeah. And I think the first thing, Louise, is that actually we should be thinking this about everybody. So routine inquiry should be every, every female over the age of 16 and under 16 if we're particularly concerned. Now, that is because sexual harm doesn't differentiate. It doesn't discriminate. You know, anybody can experience sexual harm. And if we assume that a victim of sexual harm fits a certain stereotype, we're going to miss an awful lot of people. And in my career working in sexual assault medicine, you know, I have seen people in their 70s, 80s, every gender, every sexuality, every ethnicity, every type of background that you can imagine. So we need to be thinking about it for everybody. Having said that, we know that there are particular groups who unfortunately are more at risk than other groups. And that includes Māori, and it includes young people, and particularly the 15 to 24-year-old age group. And it includes people from areas of higher deprivation. So those with, you know, the, the lowest socioeconomic kind of factors that are determinants of other health issues as well. It also includes people from the LGBTQTI community who experience rates of sexual harm and assault at two to three times that of the average population. The other risk factor, of course, are the, are the risk factors associated with the circumstances of sexual harm. And that certainly includes, you know, alcohol and drug use which render consent you know, really, really difficult or impossible. So the groups that are associated with higher rates of you know, kind of binge drinking and recreational drug use, which is also often those, those young people, are particularly at risk as well. So that does bring us on to consent, which you've already mentioned. So tell us about the conditions for consent and whether or not consent ever changes. Yeah, so consent is a very active process. And I think this is something that as health providers, we don't always understand terribly well. And I think if we're not very clear about what consent is and what consent isn't, then it's very hard for us to help our young people frame sexual assault or sexual harm as well. So I would encourage anyone listening to this podcast who hasn't watched the fantastic Cup of Tea YouTube clip about consent to go and look it up and sit down and have a watch. It's very funny. It's about three minutes long and it is the very best illustration of consent that I have ever seen. And it really brings home the different nuances of consent particularly well. So a person can only consent to sexual activity if they do it actively, freely, voluntarily and consciously and have not been pressured into sexual activity. Consent can absolutely change with time and can be withdrawn at any time. And you can't consent if you are under the influence of alcohol, drugs, asleep, unconscious, or unwell. And you also can't consent if your intellectual capacity or your mental capacity has been affected either by illness or by drugs or alcohol. So that includes, for example, adults who may have intellectual impairment and actually be functioning at the age of a child, for example. Now, they cannot consent to sexual activity, even though they may be of adult age. The other way you can't consent is if you're mistaken about who the other person is or what the sexual activity is going to involve. So, for example, we may see young people who say, well, I consented to have sex with him or her with a condom, but then the condom was removed halfway through and I didn't consent to that. Now, that absolutely constitutes lack of consent 
and sexual harm in the eyes of the law, as well as ethically. So thinking about sexual harm and the consequences of sexual harm, what do we know? What are the outcomes for these young people who have experienced sexual harm? So there's, there's several ways we can look at the outcomes, Louise, and I think if we first focus on the, the immediate outcomes, and then we'll move on to the kind of medium and longer term ones. So the immediate outcomes are kind of those obvious ones that we're going to be thinking about as this young woman is sitting in front of us. So they will be, you know, has she been injured? You know, has she got either genital injuries? Now, actually, they're reasonably uncommon. There's about a 30% rate of genital injury with, with sexual assault. But has she got any other kind of injury? You know, we are seeing more and more patterns of strangulation and other types of physical assault sitting alongside sexual harm. So we need to be thinking of whether she is, you know, physically unwell or injured as a result of what may have happened to her. Are we worried that she's going to be pregnant? So we need to be having a conversation with her around what happened. You know, was it vaginal sex? Was a condom used? Does she already have contraception? You know, she may have an IUD or a lark and therefore pregnancy is not an issue, but we need to know that. Clearly, there can be a risk of sexually transmitted infection. And again, that depends what happened during the episode of sexual harm and whether or not there was condom usage. It also depends a little bit on whether there was injury and whether there was more than one perpetrator during the sexual harm. So we need a little bit of detail to be able to kind of assess the risks that she may be exposed to. Now, aside from the physical risks, there are obviously the immediate emotional and psychological risks for this young woman as well. Now, we know that some people, this is incredibly traumatic, and they may immediately be at risk of suicide or self-harm. So we need to do a risk assessment on that basis as well. And that is particularly the case for people who have pre-existing mental health conditions or mental health issues or have experienced previous trauma. So we may already know that about this young woman, but if we don't, we may need to sensitively work out, is she at risk and do I need to involve a mental health team now to come and support this young woman? So those are the immediate safety things. There's also, of course, the risk of the people that are involved with her. You know, who was the person that did this to her? Is this someone within her family or someone within her friend group? Or is it the person that's sitting outside in the waiting room who's going to take her home? So you need to know a little bit about, is she safe to leave your clinic room? And if not, what do you need to put in place to make sure that she has got a safe place to go to? Now, beyond those immediate safety concerns, if we look further to the medium and long term for people who've experienced sexual harm, I think it's really important to say that some people do incredibly well in this space. Not all victims carry this kind of impact with them for life. There are certainly some, unfortunately, that do, but some, some experience the most incredible resilience and go on to thrive. And I have worked with young people who've experienced sexual harm, who have taken that experience and become advocates in this space and counsellors in this space and have helped support others going through this kind of thing. So they have found something within them to bring something positive out of what was an awful experience for them. But for others, it can be hugely impacting. It can massively impact mental health. And we know that people who've experienced sexual harm have far higher rates of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, suicidality, self-harm, and probably completed suicide as well. It certainly impacts on what's going to happen in their life and how successful they are. So we also know it's associated with lower rates of long-term employment, less likely to be working at your skill level, you know, a higher likelihood of dropping out of school, for example. It impacts on relationships. 
you know, it's often harder for people to build trusting relationships, not just sexual relationships, actually, but interestingly, family relationships and friendships as well. And there is often a breakdown in those relationships after someone has experienced sexual harm. And then there are the kind of long-term physical sukhilai, and that can include the long-term impacts of things like sexually transmitted infections and unwanted pregnancy that can result. But it can also include things like pelvic pain, dyspareunia, chronic pain syndrome, migraines, irritable bowel syndrome. A lot of these things can be linked to past trauma. And as a GP, I'm often reminding myself when I'm faced with a patient who's got some of these conditions. So perhaps a patient whose depression isn't responding to medication like I imagined it might, or the irritable bowel syndrome I can't get on top of, or the migraines that won't go away, to explore a history of trauma. Because more often than not, when you start to routinely inquire in those patients, you will get a disclosure. And it can then make sense to both you, but also to your patient as to how that part of their life might be impacted on their physical health. So there can be lots and lots of impacts. And what we do know is that if you can get a disclosure and then wrap around really specialized holistic support when people are ready for that, that those outcomes and the impacts can be really minimized in the long term. Thank you, Kathy. So we're going to move back to our case. We do get a disclosure. So what do we do now? How do we respond to this young woman who's distressed in our room? So I think that the most important things to remember, Louise, if somebody discloses are the basic principles of support. So the first thing is, where possible, remain calm. It's really easy to feel quite panicked and overwhelmed when someone discloses, particularly if you are in the middle of a busy routine clinic. But if you panic, it's going to cause your patient to panic. And she's just done something incredibly brave by telling you what has happened to her. So if you can, remain calm, take a few deep breaths and remind yourself that actually we know how to support people. This is something we do all day long with lots and lots of patients. The next most important principle is to believe what she's telling you. That's so important for her to know that you're not going to question this. You're not going to judge her, that actually it's your job to affirm what she's telling you, to validate what she's telling you and to show concern. One of the other incredibly important things that I have learned over years of working alongside people that have experienced sexual harm is that when somebody has been sexually harmed, it feels like the perpetrator has taken some control away from them and control over a very private, personal part of their body. So when we start working with people who've experienced this, handing that control back is incredibly important. And we can do that even in our GP clinic. And one way I do that is I will say to them, hey, look, I, you know, thank you so much for telling me this. It's incredibly brave of you. And I'm so sorry that this has happened. But I want to tell you now that whatever happens is going to be your choice from here on. You know, it's my role to give you the choices and to tell you the options. But you're going to be the person that chooses which way you want to go. And I'm going to be here to support you alongside. So handing that control back is one of the most important things we can do. Really important, as we touched on before, that when you're having this conversation with her, you are somewhere private where you're not going to be interrupted and that you allow her to talk. Don't ask her too many questions and don't try to guide the conversation too much. There will be a few pertinent things that you need to know, but she may well tell you them anyway. And if she doesn't, it's really important that you let her tell her story in her words without interrupting her unless you absolutely have to. 
reassure her that you're going to support her and that you know the people to talk to to get her some expert help. And if you didn't already do it at the beginning, I hope you did, but if you didn't, really important to discuss confidentiality and tell her that, you know, you may need to share this information with someone else, but before you do that, you will check in with her and make sure that she knows that you're going to do that. I would always take advice with this, particularly if you're a GP who hasn't dealt with a lot of sexual assaults before in young people. I think it's really important to talk this through with someone who is an expert. And I would advise either knowing that there's an expert in your own clinic, so you've got a team member who's got this expertise, or finding out who your local service is, so that if you're faced with this young woman in a busy clinic on a Monday morning, you've got at your fingertips the numbers that you need to ring to get some extra help and advice as required. So Kathy, thinking about immediate type risks for this young woman, how do we assess this? So how do we assess the risk of STI or pregnancy for her? So the first thing I would say is that she may well have told you some of this information, you know, so she may well say to you, this happened to me last night at a party, I'd had a few drinks, I'd fallen asleep on the sofa and I woke up and somebody I know vaguely in my friend group was having sex with me and he wasn't wearing a condom. Now that's actually sadly a very common story that comes through a sexual assault clinic all the time. So she's already told you that there wasn't condom use, that it's somebody she knows vaguely and that it was vaginal sex. So automatically, we know that she is at risk of sexually transmitted infection. We may not know what contraception she's already got, so we could gently ask her about that. You know, does she have an IUD? Is she a pill taker? If so, is she regularly taking it? In which case, you know, the risk of pregnancy will be a lot lower than if she's got no contraception at all. So she may already tell us this information. If she hasn't, I think it is appropriate to ask her about that. And I would be asking if she feels able to tell you what kind of sex it was, um, roughly when it happened in terms of your options for emergency contraception, whether or not she's got good contraception already, and whether or not she remembers if a condom was used. And those will all be able to inform you and also inform the local sexual assault service as to how quickly they need to see her and what kind of supports and treatments they may need to offer her. I think the next important thing to remember in this particular situation, Louise, when you're faced with this young woman is actually you don't need to do a huge amount for her except support her and listen to her because the sexual assault service are the specialist agency and I would encourage you to refer every single person that comes through your door in an acute setting like this who's recently experienced an episode of sexual harm to refer them all to the sexual assault assessment and treatment clinic. These clinics are staffed by highly specialized and trained doctors and nurses who are available 24-7 to provide not only forensic examination, if that's something that this young person is going to choose, but actually also to provide the health and safety checks and the management of things like pregnancy risk and STI risk. And they are the experts in this space. So actually, if you don't get that information, or you do get it, but you don't quite know what to do with it, it's absolutely fine because that clinic and their staff are there to help and advise you. So you said recent experience. What is a time frame for referral to a service like this, Kathy? I think any time frame is absolutely fine. If you're ringing for advice, I don't think it matters when the sexual harm occurred. If you're not sure what to do, I think you can ring your local sexual assault assessment and treatment service clinic number and ask them for advice and they will guide you. When we talk about um, forensic examination, so if we're looking at collecting evidence for the police, we're generally talking about a sexual assault that has happened 
within 10 days, certainly within seven days, but sometimes we can push that out a little bit longer. So that's from a forensic point of view, what we would count as a recent sexual assault. But obviously, anybody who's experienced sexual assault within the last few weeks is going to need consideration of pregnancy, STIs, and particularly that emotional and psychological safety as well. And the sexual assault teams work alongside the support agencies. So they will have very specialized victim support workers there with them as well, whose main focus is to look after the psychological and emotional well-being of this young person. So really important to engage with them too. And Kathy, if we are offering a referral, how often would a young person take up a referral versus saying, oh no, I just want to deal with, get the ECP and go home? What percentage would be happy to be referred on? Interesting, Louise, it's actually nearly everybody in my experience. And I think a lot of that is around how we word the referral. So as a GP, if I am seeing someone and I'm not wearing my sexual assault examiner hat, and I'm faced with this kind of situation, I will usually say, hey, look, we have specialists who work in this town who look after young people who've experienced this kind of thing all the time. And what I would like us to do now is figure out, you know, if you're happy for me to ring them and what information you're happy for me to share with them and whether you would like to go and sit down with them and have a conversation with them because they are the experts in this space. And I'd really encourage the young person to do that. Sometimes people will feel wary and will just want to stay with you as their GP because they've already given you some of the story. If that happens, I usually offer them a phone call with a sexual assault doctor or the nurse that's on call. And usually that removes any sense of anxiety and stress because the people that work in those teams are so amazing that nearly every young person puts the phone down and goes, actually, I think I would quite like to go now because I know that I'm going to meet a support worker and a doctor and a nurse and it's going to be a holistic approach to looking at what has happened to me and providing me with some ongoing support. So yeah, it's interesting. Very few people turn down that referral. I think if the young person is really adamant they don't want to go, clearly it's not our role to force them. That would be completely wrong in this situation. You know, the young person needs to be in control of the choices and it's our role to give them the information about what those choices and options are. In that situation, I would still encourage you as a GP to ring the sexual assault service and get advice. They will be able to talk you through all the different options for the young person. They'll be able to remind you of the STI prophylaxis protocol. They'll be able to talk to you about emergency contraception and how to access things like hepatitis B boosters and post-exposure prophylaxis if there's a risk of HIV, all those kind of things that as a GP, we may not necessarily deal with all the time, but in those clinics, they're seeing those every single day. So I would really encourage you to ring the service regardless of whether this young woman wants to attend or not. The other thing to remind her of is that we really encourage people if they're going to these clinics to take a support person with them. You know, and, and sometimes people turn up with a whole whole or a whole bunch of friends and we've got waiting rooms and it's absolutely fine. So anything that makes her feel more confident and more comfortable about attending is a great thing. And is there anything we should tell our young person to do or not to do in transit to the sexual health team. So as far as preserving evidence and what have you, I suppose it's important to, you know, make your way there relatively quickly. Don't stop and have a shower on the way. All those sorts of things we need to be advising them of. It, it depends what you're referring her for, Louise. If she's just going for what we would call a health and safety check, so if she's absolutely adamant that she doesn't want the police involved at any stage, and there are lots of people um, who choose that route for lots of really very, very valid reasons, 
then preserving evidence doesn't matter. So she can absolutely shower, she can go to the bathroom, she can do whatever she wants. However, if she's decided that she definitely does want to talk to the police, or she hasn't yet decided, um, in which case we have an option of doing a forensic examination and preserving it anonymously for six months until she feels able to decide, then ideally avoiding showering, avoiding eating and drinking, and certainly avoiding a genital examination, unless it's clinically indicated, is really important because any of those things can interfere with the forensic evidence that we could collect at the clinic. So it definitely depends what you're referring for and what she thinks she wants to choose further down the track. And that's a great point that you can do your forensic examination and hold things for six months, which can often give a young person or a young woman time to contemplate and perhaps get them in a safer space and get the support around them before they make that complaint to the police. Absolutely. And lots of people, you know, shortly after a sexual assault, as this young woman has presented to us in the clinic, are actually not in a state to make a good decision. You know, they may be very tired. They may still be under the influence of some alcohol or drugs. They may not have their support people with them. They may be feeling really, really shocked and traumatized. And that's not a condition to make a a great decision about involving a a very complicated police and eventually medical legal process. Mm -hmm. So we often encourage people to sit on that decision for a little bit, actually, until they've got the right people and the right supports around them. And the specialist agencies, so those workers we talked about from Help and Rape Crisis who sit alongside the sexual assault treatment clinics, um, they are super skilled in this area. So they will sit down with this young woman and talk her through all of her choices, the implications of the different choices, the time frame she's got to make them in, and they will support her in whatever decision she makes. And the Sexual Assault Assessment and Treatment Service is available to anyone, no matter whether they want police involvement or not. And it's a completely free service, no matter what people decide. Perfect. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. So we're going to send our young woman on. What do we briefly tell her about what's going to happen now? So again, it depends a little bit as to to what she has decided. But if she's decided that she does want to have a forensic examination, she will arrive at the clinic and she will hopefully be supported by a support worker from one of the specialist agencies and she'll meet with the SATS team. And pretty much every clinic will have a SATS doctor and a SATS nurse who are MedSAC trained and who do this work all the time. So they're a very specialized team of health professionals. They will briefly take some questions from her. And the history is pretty brief. We usually ask people to tell us in their own words what has happened. So it may be similar to the story she's told us as the GP, actually. And then we ask a few more specific questions around exactly what happened to which different parts of the body. And really, the reason for asking that is just to guide the sampling that we are going to do. Once we've asked a little bit of history, we then start the examination and we will talk her through all of that before we start. So we may need to collect the clothing in which case we will provide her with new clothing at the end and the ability to shower before she gets into the new clothes. Um, But we don't always need to collect the clothing. Um, We may need to, for example, take some samples from her hair, from her fingernails. We may need some blood tests. We may need to do swabs from her neck or from other parts of her skin or her body. And depending what kind of sexual harm has happened, we may need to do a gentle examination. And that is partly to check that there's no injuries, but also partly to collect samples from down there as well. But it's really important that young people understand that none of this is compulsory, you know, that every single step of the way they have a choice. 
So it's not unusual for us to see people at the sexual assault clinic who decide for some reason that they don't want a blood test or they don't feel comfortable having a genital examination. And that's absolutely fine. We will work around that and we will just do the samples and the type of examination that they feel comfortable with. Once we've finished, we will usually give them a a good old debrief around what we found, if anything, in terms of any injuries, what samples we've taken and what the next steps will be. They then usually have a bit of time sitting with the support person. And if they've brought people from their family or friendship group as well, they can sit with them and talk through while we collect all the samples up and hand them back over to the police. Nearly always at the sexual assault service, we we like to see people back for follow-up because at the time, it's it's a pretty intense few hours that you spend with the team. And I think a lot of it goes by in a bit of a blur for the patient involved. So we like to bring people back if possible. And we usually do that at around a week or two weeks, depending whether or not they've got injuries. And then a little bit further down the track as well. So kind of two to three months. And really, those are just points to check in with them about how is the process going? Are they still involved with the police? If not, do they want to involve the police further down the track? You know, how are their family and friends supporting them? How is their mental health? How are they coping with school or work? How are their relationships going? Do they have any physical symptoms? You know, have they had taken the antibiotics you gave them? All those kind of basic things. And if things aren't going so well, those are opportunities for us to engage other agencies as required, really, to provide the best support that we can. And Kathy, in our general practice consultation, obviously wrapping that up is important. So what should we be saying to the young person as far as, you know, obviously they're being really brave, we're referring them on. Should we be seeing them again routinely? Should we be following them up? What's your advice around that? I think I'd be totally guided by the young person. I always offer that. And I always say, hey, look, I'd really like to know how you're going. You know, this has been a huge thing that you've told me. And I'm, you know, really proud that you felt able to do that today. I'm really sorry that it happened. And I know that you're going to be in great hands now that I've referred you on to the Sexual Assault Assessment and Treatment Service. But I would really like to check in. Um, How do you feel about that? If they are happy for you to do that, the next question is, you know, when do you want to do that? And how do you want me to do that? You know, is that a phone call next week? Is it a text? Is it an email? do you want me to book an appointment now? And then we've got that locked in and I can check in with you in a week's time that that appointment still suits. And if you're going to do that, trying to find a way to do that without charging them is really important. So, you know, is there a way you've got some funding in your clinic, whether it's through, um, you know, an, an extended consult or a sexual health consult or perhaps utilizing ACC if they had any physical injuries so that you don't have to charge a young person to come back. Whatever way you contact them, it's really important to make sure it's safe. So I always ask, is this a safe way to contact you? If I send you a text and mum picks up the phone and she doesn't know you're coming to see me, is that going to be okay? And if it's not finding another route, you know, using an email or some other way of getting in touch with them is really important. And they may feel more comfortable coming to see someone else, you know, so it may not be you that they may want to see. It may be, you know, one of your fabulous practice nurses that they've got a great relationship, or it might be the health improvement practitioner, or it may be a counsellor you've got on site. So offering them, you know, any member of your team who's got particular expertise in this space is a really great idea as well. Thanks, Kathy. I just wonder if you could clarify, please, you mentioned ACC if they'd had a physical injury. So is it only appropriate to fill in ACC forms for sexual harm if there's been a physical injury? I find it a very confusing area, Louise, to be honest, the ACC forms in this situation. People who have experienced sexual harm in New Zealand 
are eligible for ACC and they're eligible under sensitive claims, which is a different kind of part of ACC than where we might send the ankle sprains and the head injuries. But to get ongoing counselling and support through ACC requires evidence of a mental injury. And that's an assessment process that will be undertaken by a specialised ACC contracted counsellor or psychologist. So in terms of that process, I don't usually fill out the ACC forms at the time because they can be done when we refer our young person to the counsellor or psychologist. They can take care of all of that at the time. However, if we're trying to get some funding within our general practice to see this young woman again, we do need to have some sort of ACC in place to utilise ACC funding. So if she's got physical injuries, we're able to do that. And then we can give her some time off work and reduce the cost of the consultations. It's a little bit hard to do a mental injury acutely because a lot of them rely on a certain amount of time having passed to prove that there has been a mental injury resulting from a sexual assault. So it's a little bit tricky. My advice would be if there are physical injuries and she is happy for you to document them, I think it's really important that she knows you're doing that that you do that with an ACC 45 like you would for anything else. So there's a record of those and you're able to get some funding. If it's around the mental injury stuff, I tend to leave that for the specialized counselors because they are way more adept at filling in those forms than I am. In terms of finding an ACC counselor, if this young woman in the future feels she wants to start some very specialized trauma-informed counseling funded by ACC, the place to go is the Find Support website where they have counsellors all over New Zealand who are contracted by ACC to provide this kind of support. And as I said, we don't need to fill in the ACC before our young person attends that service. That's great advice. Thank you, Kathy. And to conclude our podcast today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners, please? So the take-home messages would be that, you know, sadly, sexual assault is really common. It affects one in four women in New Zealand, and the vast majority of those will never tell anybody or seek help. And of course, males are victims too, although we're not quite as clear around the figures. Younger women are more at risk, along with Māori, people from areas of higher deprivation and members of the LGBTQI community. Routinely inquiring about sexual harm does increase the rate of disclosure and hence increases the opportunity to provide specialised support. Primary care teams are ideally placed to ask about sexual harm and should consider doing this routinely during appointments for contraception, smears, sexual health checks, and at other appropriate times as well. And lastly, if you've done a great job, you've routinely inquired and you've got a disclosure, don't panic. The most important things you can do are to be supportive, to validate their experience, to be non-judgmental, and to know who to refer to. There are fantastic specialized clinics out there staffed by amazing people, so don't be afraid to utilize that resource. And then I suppose, Kathy, my take-home message would be make sure that you're okay to continue your consultations for the day. That's incredibly important, Louise. Self-care, particularly in this line of work, is really important. So don't be afraid to access your supervision or your EAP or whatever pathway you have if you're feeling in need of that. Lovely. Thank you, Kathy. It's been a pleasure talking to you again today. Thank you, Louise. If you're a New Zealand GP, you can claim CPD points for listening to this podcast and you'll find Kathy's resources on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.